All right, we'll see how this goes. Let me pray for us. Hey, God, thanks so much for a chance to open your word now. And as we enter into this new year, would you invigorate us, uh, Lord, with uh, your power and your strength for the things that await us. There's going to be lots of challenges that will require us to change in life, God. Uh, But we know that you go before us into our future and that we can follow you through life. Uh, There might be people here uh, who have yet to start following you in life. Uh, I pray this is a chance for them to understand uh, the joy that comes from being reunited with you through your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would choose you today. But for those of us who have made that choice, help us, Lord, in every situation, every relationship, in every uh, potential change to follow you into your best for our lives as a church and as individuals, I pray. Get me out of the way. Give us your best in this sermon. Speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I woke up really early this morning, and I walked out into my main room, and the lights were still on. Now, this might not be a problem for you because you got little kids or no kids, but if you have older kids, uh, they tend to have their friends over later in the night, and you go to bed earlier than they do, and then what can happen is they leave your lights on. It's, it's a huge pet peeve of mine, a huge pet peeve. I mean, I'm paying the bills, okay? Just turn the lights off. Lock the doors. Locking the doors, you do that at your house? It's, all it is is this. Just, just this. Just do this. Can't get it done. So I walk out, you know, it's, it's early this morning, 5.36, and I'm stumbling around trying not to wake Eleanor up, and I, but I'm immediately, I'm mad because the lights are on and the doors are unlocked. So I go around turning off all the lights and locking the doors, and then I hear a noise. Uh, I'm not accustomed to hearing noises on Sunday morning. I get up every Sunday morning very early so I can get here and yell at you guys, right? <laughs> and so I'm not accustomed to this noise. I hear this noise, and then all of a sudden, uh, glasses aren't on yet, I see the outline of a man. And so I'm about to scream like a little girl <laughs> when, when the voice comes, hey, Dad, it was my son Cooper, uh, who, unbeknownst to me, uh, I had locked out of our house and turned all of the lights. We live in the woods. I turned all the lights off in this corner of the woods because uh, he had gone out running uh, early in the morning. Now, I bring this up because a few days earlier, uh, Cooper had told me, Dad, I'm going to make some changes come the new year. I was like, great, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going I'm to start doing this with my time so I have more time for school. And I was like, way to go. And he says, you know, I think I'd be able to concentrate more if I got up every morning and ran. So every morning, I'm going to get up and run. Now, when I say every morning, I'm going to get up and run, I mean like three mornings out of seven, <laughs> I'm going to get up and run. You may be different, but that's what I mean. Cooper, when he says, I'm getting up every morning and running, he's getting up every morning and running. So he's done that. Uh, for the last five or six days, and I have no reason to believe that he won't do that. I'll just have to get used to him being outside and doors being unlocked and lights on when I get up in the morning. Because isn't it the time of year where people say, I'm going to make some changes, right? I mean, more than any other time of the year, this is the time where everybody in humanity says, okay, we're flipping the calendars, so here's what's going to be different, right? And everybody says, I'm going to make some changes, and even some of us, we even do make changes. Uh, Many of us faint changes, right? We kind of fake you with the change idea, and then we don't do anything. But, but here, here let me, we're going to talk about change this morning. A uh, couple things I know about change. First of all, uh, change is one of the only things that doesn't change. Like one of the only sure things that you have in life is that stuff is going to change. Have you looked in the mirror lately, all right? You are different uh, than you were when you were younger 10 years, 20 years. Uh, things change. We grow. We change. We age. Um, uh, our, our life situations change. Our relationships change. Uh, you're going to leave here, and you're going to think you're going to go to lunch at this one place, but someone in your car is going to say, how about here? And you're going to change your entire plan for lunch because someone said, hey, how about this? 
We change all the time. You'll probably get in your car and change lanes, right? It's just what happens. We change. <laughs> it's getting stupid now, but we'll just keep going. <laughs> the second thing I know about change is that it's, it's at the core, at the heart of what it is that we as Christians believe. We believe that people need to change. In fact, we measure uh, success around here in terms of changed lives. Uh, the Bible talks about it on almost every page, that we were once lost, but now we are, that we were once blind and we are, we can now see, yeah. That's actually a song. But, but the same principles are there in the scriptures, right? That we need to change, to go from death to life, from darkness to light. We need to go from old to new, like that video, if you were here at the beginning, showed. We, we, we need to change. So we're going to spend a morning talking about change talking about the inevitability of change, that this year you're going to face things, challenges that require you to change. You're going to have to handle out some stuff in your, in your marriages and in your families uh, that you don't know is coming. Uh, we live in a busted up world. Everybody agree? Anybody watch the news lately? Uh, things come at us at breakneck speed, and they require us to adjust, to change, so that we can handle them in ways that are productive. Now, there's going to be things that, uh, like Cooper, you're going to look in your life and you're going to say, hopefully after the sermon's over, you're going to do it. You're going to say, hey, this, this in me needs to change. It's not something that's outside of me that's, that's causing me to change. It's, it's, it's me. I want this to change. I sense that God is leading me into something new, something different. And uh, I want this sermon to help us prepare for that. Because here's what I believe. I believe that this year uh, is going to be the greatest year in the history of Bay Life Church. I believe that God is going to use our church to do things uh, that uh, uh, we, we, we've, we've always hoped for or maybe never thought of. Uh, we're going to see more people come to our church than have ever come. We're going to see more people come to Christ than have ever come. That, that we're going to see more people grow up in their faith uh, that, that have ever grown up. I, I just believe that about our church. I hope that. I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm, I'm this guy when it comes to my Christianity. I, I want like that old Spike Lee movie, Mo Betta, Mo Betta Blues. Anybody remember that one? Yeah, I want Mo Betta. When it comes to my Christian life, I want more better. For me, I want more of Jesus. I want this, this better expression of him in my life. When I think of my church, I want more people following Jesus. I want the people who are following pe- uh, Jesus to be better at following Jesus. I want more better. Maybe that could be a good t-shirt around here, more better. But for that to happen, for us to, to be more better, to be a church, and to be people like we've never been before, we're going to have to be ready for change. We're going to have to be willing to listen to God as he leads us into change. So I want us to be sure that we understand the anatomy of true change this morning. Five fingers, put them up, everybody. Five fingers, there's five steps or five parts, components of true change. The first one is that you've got to identify concerns. Everybody take your thumb and tuck it in. We've got to identify concerns. The second thing is concerns need to become convictions. Everybody say convictions. And that needs to come second. The third thing is something you might not have considered about change, but it's a very important part of Christian change, and that's having a conversation with God. So we've got a conversation. Everybody say conversation. You've got concerns. Say concerns. You've got convictions. You've got conversation. And then you have to have courage. Oh, courage. Just give me some courage, right? Oh, you guys got that one. That's good. Now, courage is this elusive thing that is a component of every change. You get tired of putting up your pinky. Let me give you the last one. Completion. Everybody say completion. Every change, every true change, true change starts with us identifying the concerns, figuring out what needs to change. It moves from us having that, that general idea to having a heart passion for change, conviction. 
concerns, conviction, then there has to be a conversation with God. He has to be involved in true change. In fact, no true change happens except that God is behind it. Then we have to rely on him for the courage that is necessary for us to follow him into change. And then finally, here's the deal. We have to see changes through to their completion. And some of you are in the middle of change right now. And, and you're like, oh, yeah, and, oh, I get that too. Oh, yeah. Listen, wherever you are, whether at the front side of change, in the middle of change, these are all things that are crucial for us if we're going to be ready for what God has in 2016. I got all these from a, a book in the Bible that I love. It's Nehemiah chapter uh, 1 and 2. Uh, and the whole book, actually, it just talks about an incredible change that happened in this one dude's life, a guy named Nehemiah. Uh, in chapter 1, we, we see that uh, Nehemiah identifies his concern. Uh, he identifies his concern. If you put that on there, if they're taking notes, he identifies, there it is, he identifies his concern, and, and we're going to see that it kind of steers the whole book. He, he, he basically blogs his life here, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. You can see this at nehemiah.org. Not true, that's not, it's not his blog. But anyway, okay. <clears throat> now it happened in the month of Chislev. Happy birthday, all those Chislev birthdays out there. Anybody born on Chislev 12? Anybody? Anybody know what a Chislev is? Chislev is the Hebrew calendar. It's basically November, December, okay? So if you're kind of bridging November, December with your birthday, you were born in the month of Chislev. Hey, work another birthday out of it. That'd be, that'd be great, right? I was born on November 27th and Chislev 12. All right, here we go. It happened in, in, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. Uh, it it kind of says nothing about what 20th year, but if you go further in the book, you'll find out it's the 20th year of this guy named King Artaxerxes. Everybody say Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the son of Xerxes. I guess Arta is like Persian for junior. Uh, but uh, Artaxerxes was Xerxes' son. And he was in charge here in this region that this guy Nehemiah was living in. Quick backdrop. In 586 B.C., uh, Israel uh, is finally completely taken over by, uh, well, this marauding, uh, invading nation called Babylon. And Babylon is led by Nebuchadnezzar. And he takes all these uh, you know, Israelites back to Babylon with him, which is over in modern-day Iraq, Iran region, and uh, he, he just basically uh, sacks the country, destroys Jerusalem, and takes them back. Daniel is one of those guys, and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you're familiar with those, those names from the Bible. But anyway, uh, it's about 135, 150 years after Babylon has taken Israel uh, away from Israel and, and left the country in ruin, and, and now Nehemiah has grown up having never been to his homeland. Uh, he's generations uh, from, from, uh, from having lived there. I mean, his, his father probably didn't live there either. Maybe even his father's father never lived in Israel. Are you with me? And, and so, now, he's a good Jew. He still worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he, he's concerned with what's going on back in the homeland, even though he's never been there. And so that's where we kind of find ourselves at the beginning of his story. Uh, this month of Chislev in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, who is now the Persian kings, the Persians kicked the uh, Babylon's tails, uh, and now are in charge, uh, it's actually 445 B.C. If you're wanting to like put our timetable on it, it's about uh, 450 years before Christ comes to earth. Uh, he says, I was in Susa, the capital, which was the capital of Persia at the time, and my, uh, a guy named Hanani, one of my brothers, we don't know if it was like his actual blood brother or if this was just a fellow Jewish guy, uh, but he came with certain uh, men from Judah. They had gone and visited uh, the country that they were from. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. There was a, a remnant a portion who had been left in Israel even after uh, Babylon wiped them out. He, he says, uh, uh, concerning Jerusalem, I wondered how those who had survived 
uh, the exile were doing there in Jerusalem. Verse 3, and they said to me, this is Hananiah's report, report with his friends. He says, well, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in what? Great trouble. It isn't good back home. Now, there's shame, in fact, for our people. Why? Because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. And that was a big deal in a city. Uh, if you were going to have any hopes of defending your city, you needed, back in those days, tall walls. Uh, in the days of uh, hand-to-hand combat, spears and arrows and those kinds of things, uh, your walls were your greatest defense. If you had strong gates and tall walls, uh, they couldn't get into you. There was no fight to begin. But if you had no gates, they'd been burned down. You had no walls. They'd been knocked down. Well, then anybody can run in there and, and mess with you. And so uh, the, the walls and the gates of a city were the sign of its being a city at all, a sign of its strength. And Hananiah says to Nehemiah, uh, things aren't good back home. As you read through the book of Nehemiah, this becomes Nehemiah's life concern. He, he adopts it as his problem. Uh, he, he, he shapes his entire, the rest of his life, as far as we know it, around the rectifying of this, this issue. The walls needed to be built. True change then starts with us understanding what needs changing. And some of you are like, duh. Uh, yeah, you got to figure out what needs changing before you, you can change things. But aren't we great at ignoring the things that need to change. It's like we all live in the Lego movie. Anybody seen that one? Everything's awesome, right? Everything's cool, you know, everything's fine. If you haven't seen it, see it, it's a great movie. Everything's fine. Uh, we're the people who can get in cars and, and we can hear the squeaking of our brakes and the sputtering of our engine and be like, what, what problem? I don't know what you're talking about. This runs like a champ. Uh, until we're finally broken down on the side of the road and we're like, oh, I wish I'd paid better attention. We call it denial. It's more than a river in Egypt. It is something that we face on a daily basis when it comes uh, to the problems of our life. Now, we, denial is one of those things that's kind of a false control. Did you know that? Like when you say, well, I don't, you know, I'm not for or against something or I'm just, I'm ignoring the situation, you're basically preserving for yourself what you think is control. Like if I, if I say that there's nothing wrong with my car, in some weird warped way, I think I'm somehow in control of what's going on because I'm refusing to believe there's something wrong with my car. You see that? To admit that there's something wrong with the car is to admit that I'm not in control of what's happening around me. This is my stuff. I'm, con- you know, so to maintain control, I'll just believe that nothing is out of control. Denial, huge problem when it comes to correctly assessing what needs to change. But, but, but beyond denial, there's this other thing. Sometimes we could be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of things that need to change. Is anyone here very uh, attuned with the fact that you're not perfect, the world's not perfect, and a lot of stuff needs to change? But has anybody ever been like, like looking at the list of things that need to change and just been like, whoa, it's too much. I just, I'm not, I'm not going to try anything. It, it, it's, it's like uh, if this hoop uh, represents, I'm going to knock over Paul. Paul. What are those things? Poinsettias. I almost said palmettos, but those are outside. Anyway, um, if this hoop represents Everything that we could have concerns for. We got ISIS over here. We got our economy over here. Our bills that aren't paid. Mother-in-law. We, you know, all these things, right? <clears throat> these are all the things we can be concerned of. And we look at all those things and we just get paralyzed. There's too much. And so we end up never trying to change anything. But what if, what if we tried to boil down this whole group of things that we change into just a smaller circle of things that we maybe could change, 
and probably should change. Like you and I may not be able to, you know, dramatically affect the next election, please do vote and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and maybe we shouldn't spend all of our time listening to the pundits on the radio and let that become the thing that runs our lives uh, and, and keeps us from actually figuring out that there might be a problem at home. You know, get off of Facebook and talk to your wife kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about, right? It, that, that's, what the, that's what a lot of times needs to happen. In order for us to really tackle this stuff in life, we've got to narrow the things that we can tackle and apply our energies and God's graces to these things, even though there's lots of other things. I, that's one of my chief uh, counseling tools is, okay, let's just figure out what you can do. Because what happens when people come to counseling, they don't want counseling for themselves. They want you to fix whoever's bugging them. My husband's a toad. Can you fix him? Yeah, if he comes in, I'd be glad to help him. But he's not here. What do you say we talk about you? Well, I'm perfect. I'm not the problem. <laughs> fix the toad and everything's going to be great. Well, you know, you're here. What maybe are some of the things in your world that you can change that might even affect the toad? Oh, I've tried everything. Really? Because it sounds like you've just been focused on the toad. We've got to identify the concerns. I could do a whole sermon on that. But for, for the sake of time, I'm just going to have, uh, ask you to do this for me. As you kind of look at your life here starting in 2016, I'm sure there are things, even when I started talking about some of the changes that, you know, or this topic of changes, many of you just went bang right there. You're, you're, you know the thing that you need to change or the thing that's coming up that's going to be the challenge that's going to cause you to change, and you've been focused in on that even as I've been talking about it uh, through this first part of the sermon. But some of you have just been like, okay, we'll talk about change, blah, 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 blah. Everybody else, everything's awesome. Everybody else needs to change. I don't need to change. Fix the toad. And, 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 uh, and, and you haven't thought about the things that need to change in your life. So we're going to take a 15-second sermon pause, and I'm going to let you connect with the God of the universe, and if you ask him, guess what he's going to do? He's going to shrink that big hula hoop of concerns down to a few things, maybe two or three, that you need to focus on in the rest of this sermon, that you need to focus on in the beginning of this year. These are the things that need to change in your life, in your relationships, in your approach uh, to your walk with God. I'll just be quiet, 15 seconds. I'll count them off in my head. You just ask God, what are the things that need? You might even want to write them down. Put them in your notes in your phone. What are the things that God wants you to change as we enter 2016? Fifteen. Second thing. Second thing that happens once you identify the concerns is that some of those concerns, like this, this, this group of two or three things maybe that God has given you, are going to be the things that you have conviction over, things that you have conviction over. You've got to own uh, a conviction, a passion for certain things in your life in order for those things to change. Look at what it says in Nehemiah's story. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. This wiped them out. And I continued fasting and praying. Now, here's, here's what it means when he says continue there. Apparently, this had been a concern before. I mean, that's what made him ask Hannah and I, hey, what's going on in Jerusalem? He, he'd been concerned leading up to this. But when he heard about the condition of the, of the walls in Jerusalem, what was going on in his homeland, I mean, it just, it wiped him out. He was done. And he went to his God. And he, he shared with God his heart, my, his passion. This cannot be, this should not be. And we're going to see that 
This, this transition from concern to conviction is what propels him into his change in life. Oh, I don't know about you, uh, but a lot of times I know the concerns. I just don't care. Like, is anybody that dish family uh, that no one in your house likes to do the dishes? It's like the least favorite uh, task in my home. And I know this because dirty dishes just stack up all through my house. Like, there's this, this really comfy, comfy chair in my main room. It's my chair. Uh, but I don't always sit in it. And I can know who's been sitting in my chair. It's kind of like Goldilocks. I can know who's been sitting in my chair by the dishes that have been left on the table next to it. Like, if there's a small cereal bowl, that was Eleanor. They aren't usually there. Sorry, babe. Where are you? I love you. My kids are more prone to this. Like, like if there's several uh, drinking glasses lined up on this, it's my daughter, Kai, because she, apparently she's got to use a different glass every time, and she never takes any of them back to the kitchen. So here's what happens. One of us as parents will yell, let's clean up the dishes. Everybody bring it. <laughs> That's exactly how we sound. And, uh, and we'll go, we'll, the dishes will leave those other rooms, and they'll head to the kitchen. But here's what happens in the kitchen. You know what happens in the kitchen? Sometimes we run the dishwasher, and there's clean dishes in the dishwasher. And heaven forbid... That anybody delivering dishes from these other rooms to the kitchen would unload that sucker so we could put the dirty ones in there, right? Well, obviously, that's someone else's job, so I'll just set all these dishes here. And then my entire counter is full of the dirty dishes that should be in our dishwasher because no one will empty. Has anybody got this going on in their house? Yeah. It's called America, right? <laughs> We're so spoiled. we got dishwashers, but we just can't manage to empty them. It's because someone else should do that. Someone else should take care of that. It's not my problem. I mean, it's a problem. I get that it's a problem. But someone else. And this is what happens with so many of the, the legitimate concerns in our homes. Yeah, there's a problem with my kids, but, you know, the wife will take care of that. Or, yeah, there's a problem with my marriage, but fix the toad. Or, or yeah, there's a problem at work, but it's everybody else's fault, not mine. Yeah. Yeah, there's things that need to get done as part of our mission as a church. But I'll just trust that someone else will cover it. I mean, they're get lucky I show up. I could go somewhere else. They'd probably be happy to have me at these other places. Just be happy that I bring my shiny happy to your, your room once a week, right? Now, none of us would ever put it like that. But that's kind of how it can seem. Did you know that since the church began, there's been a 2080 rule? that 20% of the people are the ones who do 80% of the work, that 20% of the people are the ones who give 80% of the gifts. I mean, I think from the very beginning of the church, this was an issue. Why? Because the human condition is to let other people do instead of me. Now, I don't want to be a part of a church that does that. Now, I'm grateful that uh, I believe our church is kind of skewing the numbers. We're heading in directions where more and more of us are, are involved and and we're sharing the load. But isn't it great? Listen, when more people share the load, what do they say? Many hands makes for light work, something like that. When more and more of us uh, take uh, the, the passions or the hopes that God has for a change in our church and we share them together, things just get done. I, I think all churches should go from having you know, pleasant Christians who are genuinely concerned to having passionate Christians who are convicted to be a part of the changes that God wants to make in the world through us. That's what I pray for us this year as a church, that more and more of us would pop. If this was like popcorn, <laughs> every batch of popcorn's got those nasty kernels at the bottom of the bag. You know what I'm talking about, right? The ones that didn't pop, that blow your molars out every time you put one in your mouth. In churches, there's way too many kernels that don't pop. Way too many kernels that, 
after being subjected to the heat of the Holy Spirit, just stay kernels. But now God's hope is that we'd be a big, fluffy bag of popped corn. And then we'd all honor him together in the passions that he gives us. You know, and, and different people have different passions, and, 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 but all of those passions work together for the whole of God's work to be accomplished. You don't want me in that garden back there. There's a garden back there. Did you know that? Lots of great uh, men and women who serve faithfully in that garden, weeding, planting, harvesting. Uh, they, they take those, those, uh, those foods that we grow and they bring them to food, food banks around our, so that our, 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 na- our, our community can eat fresh food. It's great. And I love that we have it. Doesn't everybody love that you have it? But does everybody here, is everybody here a farmer? No, we all could farm. If we had to, that's where we come from. Americans, we all farmed back in the day. Everybody remember that? Probably don't. Uh, but that's, we, are, we are a long line of farmers. But not everybody should be in a, in, a, in a garden. The people who are passionate about the garden, go do that part. The people who are passionate about leading life groups, go do that part. The people who are passionate about serving with kids, go do that part. But everybody does a part. Because when everybody goes from concerns to conviction, we share our, our combined passions, then the, there's nothing. There, there's no telling what the body of Christ can accomplish. And those things occur. i got to keep going. Concern should become conviction. Uh, conviction has to be in uh, uh, something that we involve God in, though. Here's the deal, especially if you're Christian in here. If you're not yet Christian, you might not you know, totally agree with this. But, but if we're going to make real change in our lives, here's what we believe. We believe that the change agent in our lives is God. That God makes changes possible. And so to, to, to try to change without him... It's like, uh, it's me saying, you know, I'm going to use my microphone without the battery. Let's see how that goes. Hello? Amazing. Technology at work. Take the power out, doesn't work. Put the power back in, it does. Crazy, right? Well, that's how every change happens for the Christ follower. If you got God's power involved, change is possible. If you try it without him, eventually it's not going to work. We're gonna, uh, well, I don't have time to read his whole prayer, but Nehemiah has his conversation with God. It starts in verse 5, and, and it kind of culminates here in verse 11 in chapter 1. It says, Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant. What's it say? Today. We're going to come back to that. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's this man? This man's King Artaxerxes. See, basically, Nehemiah is saying, if I'm going to do something about the walls of Jerusalem, I'm going to have to involve the guy who's in charge. And he goes on and tells us how that's even possible for a Jew to have uh, FaceTime with the king of Persia. Well, he's the cupbearer of the king. Now, some of you are like, what's a cupbearer? Is he the guy who carries around the cup? No. Well, kind of, but he's the guy who tastes everything that goes into the cup before the king does. So if uh, somebody in the king's court decides to assassinate him by poisoning him, guess who dies instead of the king? Nehemiah. Uh, tough job. Every day could be your last, Right? Uh, your, your whole job description is die before the king does. Uh, but it's a great job. Why? Because probably no other Jews in the king's court uh, have as much face time as Nehemiah does with this King Artaxerxes. I mean, every time the king wants to put a water bottle to his face, Nehemiah goes first. And so after a while, uh, Nehemiah plays his cards right. 
and, and the king, you know, has his affections turned towards him, there's going to be opportunities. And that's what Nehemiah was praying for. Hey, God, give me opportunities in the face of this king. <laughs> he prays. He, he turns on the power switch and involves God in the change that he wants to see happen. I think, uh, if nothing else this year, probably uh, our, our view of prayer needs to be refined. Maybe we've, we've known about prayer and, and, and involved prayer in our lives for a long time, but, but maybe it's kind of you know, slid back to a, a relegated part or a relegated space in our life. Like, like maybe we think of it as a spare tire. Does anybody think of prayer as a spare tire? Like you don't get in your car and think about the spare tire until you need a spare tire, right? When something pops on your car, you're glad to have that spare tire. And so a lot of us, that's what we think of prayer. When something goes wrong, I'll whip out the spare tire and I'll talk to God about it. Some of us think of, of, of prayer as the national anthem before a football game. Anybody watch football? A lot of football games on lately. Bowl season. Uh, but every game starts the same way. Uh, some celebrity or some, you know, serviceman gets up, sings our national anthem. Huge patriot. I think it's an appropriate part of every football game. Uh, not saying it's a bad part. But it doesn't really have anything to do with the game. It's just the ceremonial beginning of every sporting contest that we have. And so here's what I think happens with a lot of Christians, is that prayer just becomes the ceremony. It's this, that's how we start. It's our national anthem. It's what we do before meals because, I don't know, it's just what we do. You won't, you, well, I don't know if I should say that out loud. Here it comes. Uh, you won't get a tummy ache if you don't pray before your meals. Should you pray before your meals? Absolutely. But I had a grandmother that used to tell me if we didn't pray before the meals, everybody was going to get a tummy ache. What? Is that the impetus for prayer? To avoid the heavenly tummy ache? No, we pray to God and we thank God for the things we have, our food and everything else included, because he is God. And he is worthy of a conversation. We should pray without ceasing, not pray because. Tummy aches? Really? Prayer isn't this ceremony. Prayer isn't this spare tire. Prayer is this thing that's meant to be the fuel behind every change that happens in our lives. Now, let me talk to you about the persistence of prayer, because here's what happens. A lot of times we start, we identify our changes, we get passionate about them, we want to see them come about, whether it's in our church or in our own lives, and we start praying towards those things and nothing happens. I call this the vending machine prayer. Anybody ever put quarters in a vending machine nothing came out? That's a frustrating moment, isn't it? I put my money in there! I mean, especially if it was like the only, like you went and you tried to find, you know, change. So you could use this vending machine and you went through all that effort and you put the quarters in and nothing comes out. Who's ever rocked a vending machine? Come on, confess. Anybody? Put your hand up there. Anybody put their hand up there? Try to find a small kid. Hey, you're small. Put your hand up there, right? I'm getting my Coke. Right? But here's what happens after rocking and digging and whatever else, you, eventually you just come to the point where you're like, no, this isn't working. And what do you do? You walk away. A lot of us, that's how we look at prayer. I prayed, put my money in, spent my time. I rocked this sucker. I dug in deep. And God just hasn't answered my prayer. So what do I do now? Well, that didn't work. So-and-so isn't healed. The money didn't come in. The people didn't, you know, agree with me in my hopes and in my vision, and, and, and so I guess we're done. And we just walk away from prayer. Can I just show you one thing in Nehemiah's life that I just saw for the first time? I read this story over and over again. Can you put chapter 2, verse 1 up? Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. In the month of Nisan, this is the next verse after verse 11. In the month of Nisan, I drive a, a Titan. Maybe you have a Sentra or an Altima. Good for you. Great. 
Is that what this is? No. This is an actual month in the Hebrew calendar. Does anybody know what month it is in our calendar? You probably don't because I didn't. I'll tell you. It's March and April. So Nehemiah starts praying after hearing about the news from Hanani about the walls of Jerusalem. He starts praying. And when? November, December. And when's his first shot before the king? March or April. Four months. Four months. It says there in the text earlier that he prayed continually. He just kept praying and fasting and asking God. Didn't stop. Prayed without ceasing. And God, listen, is, is God all-powerful? Could God have made that happen? Like, what did he, he pray? He said, I pray that today you give me favor in front of this man. What, what, was, what was Nehemiah's clock? Let's get this going. I want to go fix some walls for your, for your namesake, God. And did God have the power to make it happen that day? Yeah. Did he have the power to make it happen that week? Sure. Could he have done it that month? Could we have not left Chislev, the month of Chislev? And could he have answered Nehemiah's prayer? Sure. But what does he wait? He waits for Nisan. Four months. You know why God does that sometimes? He does that so that our faith can grow. So that we get some calluses on these knees and we, we dig deeper than we've ever dug into this thing called prayer. And, and we go further into trusting him and having faith. See, every, you know, if God answers our prayers real fast, we start thinking this is kind of like waving a wand. <laughs> you know, we say jump, and God should say how high. Somebody's like, ooh, good. Because that's not how this works. He's God. We're not, right? And so God, I think, he allows us to wait. He allows, and some of you are like, man, it's been so long. It's been years that I've been praying for this change in my marriage. It's been years since I've been hoping for this change in jobs. It's been, okay, are you deeper into your faith, or have you shook in the, the vending machine and walked away? Ah, oh, that we might, in every change, include God. It's the only way for change to truly happen. It's the only way for us to have this next thing, which is to move forward in courage. Moving forward in courage starts with us identifying our concerns, for those concerns becoming our convictions, for those convictions being brought to God in a conversation with him so that he can be involved. But then when he gets involved, guess what? Stuff starts happening. Maybe not right away, but eventually, if it's his will, things are going to go down. Now, I don't have time to read all the verses, but in chapter 2, verse 1, I'll read the first verse. Go to 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, cupbearer, come here, buddy. Uh, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. And he, uh, uh, he noticed that uh, I had been sad in his presence. And I'm going to paraphrase the next verses. But the king finally speaks. But just so you know, in those days, no one spoke to the king first. Especially a slave, a servant like Nehemiah. You don't go, hey, king, how's it going? Good day. How about those, you know, buccaneers or you know, nothing like that. Hope they win today. Anyway, uh, you know, you didn't have informalities with the king. You spoke if spoken to. And so the king looks at Nehemiah, and apparently Nehemiah, uh, whose job was to not, you know, or to keep the king from dying and to, and, to, and to keep the king's spirits up. He hadn't been smiling like he normally had been. And for whatever reason, this king, this, this pagan Artaxerxes, says, hey, what's, why the long face? And so if you keep reading, I'm not going to take the time, but if you keep reading, it says right in the middle of this, this event going on that, that Nehemiah prays one more time. He says, so I prayed to God. And in the midst of this interaction with the king of Persia, uh, he said a bunch of niceties to the king, you know, oh, may the king live forever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but here's the deal. The walls of my city, Jerusalem, are on the ground. That's why my face is so long. That's why I, I, I can't get it out of my head. 
I feel like I'm supposed to go and do something about that. King says, King says this, well, is there anything I can do for you? Door opens, right? And Nehemiah goes, well, here we go. And he asks big. Because here's what he says. He doesn't say, hey, could you send some of your workers down there to fix them for me? He doesn't say, you know, uh, uh, can you maybe send out a petition on email and see if anybody would. You no, know? he says, listen, I need you to let me go for my job as a cupbearer. I need you to let me to go uh, over to Israel. I need the keys to Home Depot. I'm going to need you to give me all the supplies that I need to fix the walls. And then I'm going to need you to sign a document so that everybody who thinks that I'm doing this on my own knows that I'm doing it with your blessing, and it is essentially going to make me the governor of Judah. This is what Nehemiah says. He goes big or he goes home. And just so you know, this is audacious. People in the court were probably looking around going like, can you believe the cupbearer? This guy's toast. He has overextended just a bit. But the king, if you keep reading this, the king says, no, sounds good. When can you start? Oh, courage. I wish I had some courage. Courage to face the risky, scary, costly, hard things of life. Every change is kind of like that. It's usually risky, definitely scary. A lot of times costly and almost always hard. And we never, we never get past where we are now if we don't, by the grace of God, get pushed into what he wants for us next. A few years ago, <laughs> uh, almost four now, uh, next week will be four years, uh, we took in Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea's our other daughter. Um, uh, many of you know the story, but some of you don't. Uh, Chelsea uh, was living nowhere. She was living in sheds in the back of people's homes uh, without them knowing, and uh, and she came to us. She, long story, we'd known, known her since she was a kid. Uh, but one day, Eleanor comes to me and she says, Chelsea's coming home. Chelsea's coming home. That was, that was the beginning of us and Chelsea. And I don't even know if I got to pray or decide. It was just happening. It was, it was on me. Uh, but one day turned into two days, and two days turned into a first week, and a first week turned into a first month, and 11 months later, uh, she, she moved out of our house. But, but those 11 months, let me tell you, there was a times they were hard. There were, there were times where there's lots of risks. It was costly. Uh, there was times where it was scary. I had a stranger live in my house for the first week. I mean, I knew her, but I didn't really know her. You know what I'm talking about? But on this side of it, she, she came to Christmas a couple weeks ago, and she gave her, her mom, Eleanor, uh, a, a gift. And it was, uh, Chelsea's a great gift giver. She's really, she's, she thinks about them. I just throw socks at you. She thinks about them, right? And, and she'd given a gift that was for each, it symbolized each of the years that she'd been with us. It was our third Christmas together. And, 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 uh, and, and I don't want to tell you what they were. It won't mean anything to you. But they were, they were so precious. And to sit there with her as part of our family, to see her son of size, you know, bouncing around her house, for us to have that. Listen, some of the greatest things, look at me. Hear this if you don't hear anything else. Some of the greatest things that you'll ever experience in your life will be the riskiest, scariest, toughest, hardest things you'll ever do. But by the grace of God, when, when you step out in faith, when you uh, seek him and he answers your prayer and he gives you the opportunities, when you step into those things and you face those challenges together, he will reward you with some of the best stuff of your life as you walk with him in faith. The last thing, 
as I leave you before you fill out your ballots and turn them in. I got it in. <clears throat> Is it, there's got to be a completion. If, if I had time, I'd read the rest of the book of Nehemiah to you. I'll leave that to you. Read that. Read the book of Nehemiah this week. But you'll read the story as, as completion uh, of the walls uh, finally happens. It took 52 days. Pretty good uh, work project. Uh, in chapter 3, you see all the people who got together and helped build those walls. But in 52 days from the time Nehemiah starts to the time he finishes, uh, the walls are up. Uh, just so you know, you can read it, but the 52 days were hard. Uh, the guys actually had to build uh, with a DeWalt uh, drill in one hand and a Smith & Wesson in the other, okay? Because they were constantly under threat of attack. People in that region did not want the Jews to restore their city. Uh, but by God's grace, 52 days later, the walls were completed. Here, here's what happens a lot of change. And just, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. A lot of times we're great at starting change. Like, like the, the gyms are going to be full this month. Right? Because everybody's going to get in shape. You're all going to buy your memberships, and you're going to knock it out for the first three weeks, and then that fourth week, someone's going to bring red velvet cake over. <laughs> right? And that's going to start it, and then Monday's going to happen, and you're going to be all like hung over from the red velvet cake, and you're not going to make it to the gym, and then Tuesday is the same thing, and all of a sudden, in February, the gym's empty. It's a statistic, that word, it's, it's, it's proven. <laughs> It is proven. Why? Because Americans are great starters, and we're usually not all that great at finishing. Here's the deal. If God's called you to something, uh, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in you. God's in. He's in it to win it. He's not going to call you a change that he's not going to finish. The question is, will you? Will I? Will we persist? and the things that God's called us to. The only way that true change can have its full effect in your life is we finish, we complete. Because some of you are in the midst of a change and it's been hard. Some of you are in the midst of a challenge that you're having to face that you don't know how it's going to turn out. You can't control everything in the hula hoop. And you're tired. Let me encourage you. Our God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above anything we can ask or think. You stay with him. You, you follow. You trust. Let him give you the courage to face every day and see those changes through. We identify our concerns. We let our concerns become the convictions that God has for us. We all pull on the rope together and we make things happen. We bring every change to the throne of God, and we ask him to be involved. He's our power source. And we look to him for the courage so that when that door opens, we can ask big and go big and see this change become a reality. We finish these changes. And to the glory of God, we become new people so that he is honored and he gets the best out of us in life. That's my hope for us this year as a church. May God grant it to us. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word and the chance to open it today. <clears throat> I lift this group of people before you. Uh, many of them I know. Uh, we've been doing life together for uh, the past 11 years. Some of them are brand new to us, and there's everybody in between. But God, every one of us is your creation. Every one of us was made for you and by you. Uh, every one of us, uh, you have a plan for our lives. You have hopes, the things that you uh, see for us. We want to see those things, those changes that need to be made, God. We want to experience those things. So lead us this year 
into the life that you have for us as a church and as individuals. Uh, help us to burn with passion for those things that need to change. Help us to involve you in those things. Help us to see you uh, as we step out and courage in those things, deliver uh, on those, uh, uh, those, those answers to prayer. And then, God, uh, just give us the strength to persist in the things you've called us to. At the end, Lord, we'll look back and we'll see all the great ways that you've used us as a result of us walking in change with you. I trust that with all my heart. I pray that for all of us today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Ballot's in, please, as you leave. God bless you as you go. I'll be here in the corner. Have a great new year.